excited to be back to share with you guys again. Um, but I got to thinking, if I'm going to be doing this on, uh, you know, more than once, I should probably learn what wakes up a good sermon. Uh, what are the different parts of a sermon that I should be looking for? And so I Googled it, and I learned a few things. Uh, the first thing is this. A good sermon should begin with a church-based joke. So here goes. No, not me. I don't know why. Why did they laugh? <laughs> Three pastors walk into a bar, but luckily the fourth one ducked. I, I, didn't, I didn't say it had to be a good joke. I said a good sermon needs a joke, not that a good sermon will have a good joke. Uh, number two, a good sermon should have three points, which will be tough for me because usually when I'm up here, most of what I say is rather pointless. And finally, a good sermon, sermon should always leave them wanting more, but it may already be too late for that. But uh, I am glad to be back uh, to have a chance to share with you again. Last time I talked about what it meant to surrender, to surrender to the will of God. And uh, that sparked a number of questions from people, both Saturday night and Sunday morning, who, who said to me, you know, how can I surrender to God's will if I don't know what God's will is? And it's a fair question. So today I'd like to talk to you about the will of God, because so often the will of God seems like some sort of puzzle or riddle that we're supposed to figure out. And so let me ask you, do you guys like puzzles and riddles? Yeah, neither do I. So uh, I'll tell you a story, though, from when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, I was once tested to see if I was gifted, uh, to see whether I should go into a special class with all the other child geniuses. Why, why are they laughing at you? Oh, okay. <laughs> thought you were laughing at the thought of that. Uh, so the test began with this question. First, we fill a bathtub full of water. Then we offer you a teaspoon, a coffee mug, and a bucket to see which you should use to completely empty that bathtub. So here's the test. Would you use the spoon? Would you use the coffee mug or would you use the bucket? And I thought about it for a good long time. And then I proudly yelled out, a normal person would choose the bucket because it's biggest and it'd be fastest and easiest to do. But a genius, a true genius would use that teaspoon because then they could get every last drip out of that bathtub. And I smiled and leaned back in my chair and I looked around to see who else had just noticed my moment of pure genius there. And Mr. McLeish, I still remember his name, he smiled back at me and he said, you're neither normal nor a genius, because those, those people would have just pulled the plug. But here's the things about riddles. They make sense, but they kind of don't. I mean, you get it, but you're not really sure. I mean, you know, but you, you don't. And so let's try this one. Three people check into a hotel. They pay $30 to the manager and they go to their room, and the manager realizes the room only costs $25. So he gives the $5 to the bellboy to return. And so on the way upstairs, the bellboy realizes, how am I going to split $5 between three people? So he decides he'll just keep two as a tip and return the other three. So he's got $2 as his tip. He gives $1 back to each person. So now each person paid 10 but got one back, so that's nine. Nine times three is 27. And the bellboy has the other two. That, that equals 29. So where's the other dollar? You know, but you don't, right? I, uh, I asked my daughter this a few, a few days ago on the way home, and uh, she said, who cares? It's a dollar. But the actual, the actual answer is this. Uh, and I, I used to have a math teacher who used to call every answer I ever wrote on the blackboard a nice piece of nonsense. Because it always looked like math, but it never had the right answer at the end. So this is a good example of that. Each person paid $9, and they gave them 30 So the first equation tells us that 27 which is what they paid, plus the $2 tip, equals 30, but we know it doesn't. There's a missing dollar, but that's just 
uh, it's a false equation. In reality, the room cost $25, the bellboy kept $2 for a tip, and $27 is what the three of them paid. You knew what was wrong, but you couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with it. That's the thing about a riddle, right? So let me start with two statements this morning, two statements of fact that we'll work off of for the rest of the morning. First one is this, God has a specific and specialized plan for your life. And number two, he wants you to know what it is. Because here's the thing, most of us don't know how to access that information. We, we tend to do one of two things. We either pray for a specific question with a show me the sign prayer, right? Have you ever done this? And then we become frustrated when we don't get an answer. You know what I mean, don't you? You kind of give God an ultimatum in question form. Show me a sign if you want me to fill in the blank. It's like the time I was late for an important meeting, and I was searching desperately for a parking spot in a crowded lot. And finally, I looked up to the sky, and I prayed, Lord, if you, want, if you find me a parking spot, I promise to rededicate my life to you. I'll follow you wherever you lead. And the words were barely out of my mouth when miraculously a spot opened up right in front of me. And so I quickly looked back up and said, never mind, found one. Or, or we tend to do this. We flip through our Bible. We start flipping through our Bible looking for answers. And you, and, you, and, you, and you come across Moses who climbs a mountain and gets his answers written in stone. Or you hear about Joseph who, uh, who has, uh, has God's will revealed to him in a dream. Or you're thinking, maybe I should just wait for the literal writing on the wall like with Daniel. You know, Lord, if it's your will, I'll cheat on my taxes. Just give me a sign. Then you frantically read through your Bible and you're looking for a reference that somehow answers that question for you. And you read this, you read this, that Jesus tells us to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Caesar. Who's Caesar? I don't know a Caesar. Wait, Caesar's Palace in Vegas. God wants me to take my tax money and go to Vegas and gamble it away. Awesome. But as silly as those two examples are, there's kind of a grain of truth to them when we, when we go about trying to seek out God's will. But listen, as sure as God made you, he has a vision for your life. And so here it is, a single statement from Scripture that will explain all of this. In fact, this is so powerful, I'm only going to give you half of the verse. Are you ready? Proverbs 3, 6, the second half, it finishes like this, and he will make your paths straight. Now, the Hebrew word here for straight is better defined as obvious. He will make your path obvious. Not necessarily easy, but obvious. In fact, listen to a few other translations. New Living Translation says this, he will show you which path to take. The New King James Version says he shall, he shall direct your path. He will keep you on track from the message, and the Good News Translation says he will show you the right way. So here it is, in half a verse, he's telling us that he's going to do this for us. But before we start talking about how he does that, I think we need to kind of define what we mean by God's will. And I think there's three different ways we can define that because it's used three different ways in the Bible. And these are not my, my titles for these, and they're not actually from the Bible either. These are actually, uh, the names of these three types are actually uh, from Andy Stanley in a book called uh, The Seven Checkpoints. But the first one is this. It's called The Providential Will of God. This is what the things that God is going to do no matter what. And so you don't have to pray for God for these things to happen because God has already decided that he's going to do them simply because he's God. And so some examples, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that, we could, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. God sending his son 2,000 years ago was God's will, his providential will, not based on a prayer from any one person, but just God chose to do that. Revelation 2, 22, 7 says, look, I'm coming soon. Blessed are those who obey the word of prophecy written in this book. 
And so we know God's re- Christ is returning to us in God's timing. Things are not, these are not things that are dependent on our prayers, our obedience, or our faith, but rather they're dependent on one thing, the perfect timing of God. Keep in mind, however, that throughout history, God has used people to make his providential will happen. He used Mary to bring about the birth of his, his son, and he can use all of us to, to bring about his will. But God said that now is the time, and then he chose Mary to make it happen. But here's the key. As believers, the more familiar we become with what God is doing in the world, then the easier it becomes for us to identify his will in our own personal lives. So the second one is the moral will of God. These are the things that God has given us as commands, the thou shall and thou shall nots. They're, not, they're just certain things we don't have to pray about to get an answer. God, should I lie? Should I steal this iPhone that somebody left sitting out? Should I start an ugly rumor about the person sitting in front of me at church? We don't need further clarification. God's will in this area is clear. He's told us how he wants to live. He wants us to live. So examples would be 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from sexual sin. Or 1 Peter 2.15. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against us. These are things that God wants from all of us as followers of his. And they've been set out in scripture for anyone who believes. Because again, the more familiar we become with the moral will of God, the easier it will be for us to recognize the will of God in our own lives. And finally, the third one is the personal will of God. And that's kind of what we're focused on tonight. These are the decisions we make all the time in our lives that God has an interest in. So examples might be 1 Corinthians 1.1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle, Christ Jesus, from our brother Sosthenes. You guys ever reading scripture and you come to one of those names and you're like, I don't want to say that. I'm going to butcher it. You guys want to say it? Not bad. Here, I'll give you a little, I'll give you a little graphic to help you. Ready? It's sauce the knees. Say it. That's very good. I don't know if you've ever done this at a Bible study where someone asks for somebody to read scripture and then, so I get there and no one else has put up their hand. So I don't want to volunteer until I skim read it to make sure there's no crazy names in there that I'm not going to be able to say. You know, you're reading through and you said, hey, does anybody want to read Genesis 41 verse 45? And I'm like, uh, I can't find it. Uh, is that in the New Testament? Or the Old? I don't know where that is. I'm, I, I'm not even going to try that. So I just pretend I can't find it till someone else has the guts to do it. But anyway, sorry, back to the verse in question here. Paul becoming an apostle was personal for Paul. I don't read 1 Corinthians 1.1 and then suddenly say to myself, oh, I guess now I'm an apostle. That was God's will for Paul. 1 Peter 4.19, so if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. That's a personal for some people, not for all people. But here's the thing. The more familiar you become with the providential will of God, what God is already doing, and the more obedient you become to the moral will of God, what God wants us all to do, the easier it will be for you to discover the personal will of God in your life. I mean, since God sent his son to give you a new life, I think it's safe to say he cares what we do with that life. But I think this often happens. We say, God, please show me your will in my life, your plan for me, so I can think about it. And it's kind of a normal reaction for people. When when someone says to me, can I ask you for a favor? The answer generally depends on what they're asking. Can I ask you a favor? Well, that depends. Depends on what? Well, what do you want? Right? For example, if someone says to me, hey, my car just broke and I need to get to work right after church. Can I ask you for a favor? 
I'm still listening for the rest. Maybe they want to ride to work and probably do that. Maybe they want $20,000 to buy a new car so they won't have to worry about their old car breaking down anymore. Maybe they want me to help them steal a car from the church parking lot so they can get to work on time. It's natural for us to want to know what we're getting into when we're making a decision, but God doesn't operate that way. It's almost like we want advice from God. God, I have a really big decision to make, so I'm asking you for advice on what I should do. Then I can make my decision. God doesn't say, hey, if it's up to me, I go with this, but whatever. Uh, Because here's the thing, and Andy Stanley puts it so perfectly. He says, when God communicates, he does so with an expectation of participation. You see, it's not that God is unwilling to speak. It's that for many of us, there's an unwillingness to follow through. And so let's see the rest of that section. What proceeds and he will make your path straight. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Could almost be then he will make your path straight. All your heart and all your ways. It's not the same as some of the time or a most of the time situation. If you completely trust in God and submit to him, then he will make your path straight, your direction clear. It's not a case of looking for God's plan in your life so you can consider it, so you can make a pros and cons list and what God wants goes on that chart somewhere. It's leaning 100% on his decision-making, on his plan. Because there's really no difference in this, in this passage between the word trusting and leaning. You could, you could move them back and forth. You could use them the same way because to lean on something means to trust in it. You're not going to lean on a pair of crutches if you don't think they're going to hold your weight. You're not going to sit on a chair that looks like it's about to break. It's only when you trust something you're going to lean on it. But uh, if, I, if someone asked me how would you describe the word trust, I don't think I would give a definition. Instead, I would tell the story. I would tell the story of Yuri Gagarin. I said that almost right. Yuri Gagarin. Anybody know who that is? <laughs> hey, he's an astronaut. Very good, very good. Um, yeah, he was the first man in space, and he was from the Soviet Union. And uh, you, when I ask you, you know, to name some famous astronauts, most people will come up with Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin or maybe even Roberta Bondar is the first female uh, Canadian uh, lady, but uh, first astronaut. But Yuri Gagarin was the first man to fly in space. And at the end of the Cold War, some of his Russian cosmonauts revealed the pressure that he was under when he first went into space. Because Yuri's rocket ship was armed with an explosive charge that could be detonated by radio signal. You see, the Russians wanted to ensure Yuri didn't defect by re-entering Earth's atmosphere anywhere except over Soviet territory. So the explosives were rigged, and the charges could only be disarmed and the rocket system re-entry system reactivated by entering a six-digit code. Gagarin was given the first three numbers, and the last three were to be transmitted to him just before the, rock, the retro rockets were going to fire. Because the Soviet government didn't trust Yuri. But the head of the space program, chief designer Korolev, did. Just before the rocket was launched, Korolev pulled Yuri aside and he told him those last three numbers. And Korolev trusted Yuri, a trust that he was prepared to not only lay his job on the line for, but his very life. By telling Yuri those numbers, he was committing an act of treason, punishable by death, or maybe if he was lucky, life in a prison in a Russian gulag in Siberia. But here's the thing, Korolev didn't know what Yuri would do given the chance to defect based on experience. He's the first man in space. He'd never had this opportunity before. But what he did know was he knew Yuri, and he trusted in his character. And that's what God wants you to do, to trust in his character, to lean on or trust in who he is. 
So God is saying when you trust in him and fully depend on him and, and you move away from your own thoughts, your own decision-making, that's when you're ready for the second half of verse 6. And again, this word all and all your ways, not just those areas where you're seeking an answer. Submit to God. And this is why I keep saying this to you. The more familiar you become with the providential will of God, what God is doing anyway, and the more obedient you become to the moral will of God, what God wants us all to do, the easier it will be for you to discover the personal will of God in your life. So in other words, if you're at the place in your life where you're only willing to say, God, I'm not sure that I want to do your will, but I'm interested in knowing what it is, God says it doesn't work that way. But if you'll trust in me with all your heart, and if all other areas of your life where you do know what my will for you is, you submit to me, then he makes us a promise. So I'll make your path plain, clear, obvious, and straight. It means that surrendering to the known will of God is what paves the way to discovering the unknown will of God. It's surrendering in obedience to what we know that sets us up to be able to discern more. And this really goes into understanding why it seems as though God's will for us can sometimes it feels like a puzzle or a riddle. Because God is more interested in you discovering him, excuse me, him, than he is in you discovering his will for you. Because knowing God gets you, knowing God's will gets you nowhere if you don't know God. Because the ultimate point is what God wants is not for us to have the information. The ultimate point is for God that for us to go through the process of seeking him and seeking his input so that we can follow. Philip Yancey said it this way, I do not get to know God and then do his will. Instead, I get to know him more deeply by doing it. And the more familiar we become with what God is already doing, and the more familiar and obedient you become to the moral code for your life, it will become easier and easier to discern what it is he, he has in store for us. It's saying, what would Jesus do, not because it's on your bracelet, but because it's that you want to know the answer, because you want to follow. And that's why we need to trust in him and lean not on our own understanding. But my honest question is why? Why can't I just do my own thing? And if I get stuck, I promise I'll go to God. If I get myself in a situation where I can't decide or I'm in a little bit of trouble, then I'll lean on God. Does God really care about the everyday stuff in my life? Does God really care um, as long as I'm, I'm kind of trying to chart my own path? And I think the, the answer is simple. Um, we need to trust in him and lean on our understanding because God is our creator. He understands how things ought to be. So listen to this, Isaiah 55, 8. My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. So Isaiah wrote this, but the who, um, the my thoughts here is referring to God, right? So God's thoughts are nothing like our thoughts. God's saying that we don't think alike. Things God does may not make sense to us because we can't even imagine the things that God can do. And in the case we're not getting the point, he continues in the next verse. In verse 9 it says, For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. See, we don't think like God and we don't act like God, and we don't understand things the way that God does. And so what that means is there's what seems like common sense to us may not be uh, may be counter to what God has to say. Situations where we're used to using our own power of reason and logic may not align with God. And I talked about this last time when I spoke. We talked about how our heart and our emotions may be leading us in a direction that God doesn't want us to go. Because I believe that scripture was given to us for this primary purpose. But I want to take us back to what I talked about last time in Romans 12 too. We talked about this. We said, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person 
by changing the way you think. And we focused on that, and we talked about how that transformation came from the inside out, and we talked about how that transformation takes place, but we were never really finished. We never really talked about the second half. It says, then, once you've been transformed, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So what Paul is saying is if you begin to renew your mind, you'll be able to learn, and you'll be able to understand, and you'll be able to figure out, and you'll be able to discern and make decisions in accordance to what God wants. See, we have the opportunity to renew our minds, to renew our thinking so that we think more like God does. We see things more like God does, and we act more in line with God. God has given us the scripture not as an instruction manual, but as a way of knowing him better, to think like he thinks so that our ways can become more like his ways. I, I want to share a couple very, very quick examples of how, how you might see that in your everyday life. So how, is God, how are God's ways above our ways? And so one has to do with forgiveness. When we lean on our own understanding, one thing makes sense, and then we read Scripture, and it's telling us something else. And one of the reasons why I think so many people struggle with relationships is they do what the world tells them, that, but God lays out a different path, a better path. And so we see that God wants us to forgive those who wrong us, no matter how many times they've wronged us, and we say, that's crazy. I mean, we even have a saying for it, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. We blame ourselves, right? If someone, if someone does something to us and we don't protect ourselves, it just seems like that's a mistake. God says, listen, you need to forgive people. No matter how many times they've hurt you, you need to forgive people. And we just think that's crazy. But God tells us over and over again, my ways are above your ways. And my ways of thinking is different than your way of thinking. I created you and I created the entire world that you live in. And I know how you were designed to live. Just trust me. Another area is finances, and Mark spent the last two months teaching on this. Our society tells us that our money is ours, and we can spend it however we want, even if it's not our money. We can keep it all to ourselves and give nothing to benefit others. But God tells us to be generous first and to give first, and we say that's crazy. But God tells us over and over again, my ways are above your ways, and my ways of thinking is above your way of thinking. And so when we pray for guidance from God, we should begin by saying to God, I know my ways are not your ways, but I want to learn your ways to renew my mind and transform my thinking. So I wanted to close tonight just by sharing a great Old Testament story that I think really illustrates this well. It's from the first book of Samuel. And so David, who is going to be the next king of Israel, is being hunted by Saul, the current king of Israel, because he wants his son Jonathan to become the next king of Israel. And so it's kind of like a Game of Thrones situation. I don't think there's any dragons, though. But David and his men are fleeing from Saul, and they decide to hide in a cave. And hopefully Saul and his men will pass by while they're hiding, and they can sneak back out and cut back the way they came. And so they're hiding in the cave, and then Saul walks in to the cave, that exact same cave, all by himself to use the washroom. And so we'll pick it up in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4. It says, Now it's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to the Lord and King. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. But if, Saul, if, if David kills Saul, he's king. All his problems are over. And his men are saying, this must, be, this must be God's will. They said, Today's the Lord is telling you. They're telling him that this is God's will. And if you think about it, it must, it must have seemed meant to be. You've gone from hiding and, and, and struggling to stay alive to suddenly you're in control. 
you've got your most likely about 200 men in this cave, and there's Saul by himself. And it must have seemed like it was meant to be. So David's emotions would have been, i got to kill Saul. And David's men are telling him, you got to kill Saul. And the circumstances are saying, you got to go kill Saul. But I want you to notice something here. David didn't pray for God for an answer, and he didn't pull out his Bible and look for a meaningful verse. Instead, he knew the heart of God. He knew that although God's ways are different from our ways, he chose to trust in God rather than lean on his own understanding. You know, my, my favorite uh, musician is a, a man named Lincoln Brewster, and, and uh, my favorite song I favor is a song called Oxygen. I like to share uh, a line of that song. Would you like me to sing it? No, you don't. You don't. <laughs> Correct, John. The song goes like this. Each step I find that you are speaking your will to my heart. I think, that's, I think that sums it up perfectly. It's, it's, it's speaking his will to our heart, that we just know. When we know him, we know what he would do in that situation. There's no reason why Saul shouldn't have, uh, David shouldn't have killed Saul right then and there. He was being hunted by Saul. He knew he was going to be the next king. There's no reason why he wouldn't do that. But he knew in his heart. Uh, the New King James Version, instead of saying his conscience was bothering him, it says it this way. Um, he just knew in his, sorry, he, that uh, David's heart was troubled. He just knew in his heart that he shouldn't do that. And just like Chief Designer Korolev, who did not know from experience what Yuri would do given the chance to defect, but trusted him anyway, David knew what to do, not because of his experience. This is the first time he'd been in a cave with Saul thinking about killing him. It's not from experience he knew what to do. It was based on who he knew God was. And how did he know? Well, David tells us in the Psalm, Psalm 119.24, says, Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. The word statue here means laws, or we would just call them the scriptures. It says, the Bible is my delight. They counsel me. And so he learned the will of God from reading the scriptures by learning who God was. You won't be able to find for every situation in your life. You can't decide what car to buy. There's no advice on buying cars. You're not to be able to tell what to do if you, you're uh, given an opportunity to seize the kingship of a country. It's not in there. But the heart of God is in there, and you can learn it by knowing him better. And so David had learned a principle. He learned, God, through his word, had taught him a principle. That principle was something like this. You don't replace what God has put in place. And so David knew that principle. And so not only did he not kill Saul, he wouldn't allow his men to kill Saul either. Because the most important thing I think we can do is start to immerse ourselves in the Bible to start learning who God is and what he's like so we can better understand his ways. The more familiar we are with the will of God as laid out in the Bible, the more we understand his principles when, and then the more we understand his will. Uh, sorry, then the more we'll understand his will. So let me just, just end the way I began to remind you that God has a specific and personalized plan for your life, and he desperately wants you to know him. Let's pray. Lord, just thank you so much for an opportunity to come and share, Lord, and thank you so much for, for what you've taught me uh, in preparing this, Lord. It's, um, it's powerful stuff when, uh, when you speak to us, Lord. And uh, we always want to be open to that, and we always want to be available to you, Lord. But I want to know who you are, and I want to better understand who you are, Lord. And you've given us the Bible as, as, a, as a starting point for that, Lord, to say your character is in there. You tell us over and over again your character does not change, that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, that we can know you by knowing your word. And, Lord, I just pray that we would just have the, the, the strength and the courage, Lord, to just step out and say, Lord, in this area of my life, I know what your will is, so I need to be obedient to it. I need to follow it because I want to open up all that's in store for me, Lord, because we know that you have a perfect plan for each of us.
and it's personalized to us, Lord, and it's special just for us. And Lord, I just pray we would, we would begin to discover that, begin to, to learn, Lord, what it is that you would have us do so that we can really understand who you are and learn your ways so they can become our ways. And I just thank you for a great church like Kingway where we can get together, um, just worship together, share together, fellowship together, and learn together. And we're just thankful for that, Lord. I just pray this in your name.